0: The message you are listening to is recorded by Campus Outreach for the 2019 Campus Outreach New Year's Conference. More information about Campus Outreach New Year's Conference can be found at conycnd.com. All right, let's get this thing going. Good afternoon. I hope you guys are doing good. I hope you're enjoying your conference. Uh, my name is Tyler Soul, and I'm on staff with CO at Georgetown College in Central Kentucky. Uh, we're just north of Lexington, a little bit of east of Louisville, uh, so small liberal arts school, Uh, but I'm excited to be here with you guys. This seminar is called The Big Picture. We're going to be talking about the Old Testament, so if you think you're in the whole Christ, that seminar is not happening, Uh, but I think you'll enjoy this one hopefully, so I'm glad you're here. Um, But just to start out, is this anybody's first New Year's conference in here? Okay, a lot of you. Awesome. That's great. Well, this is number 10 for me. Uh, Four of those as a student and six of them now on staff, and every year I grow so much by being at these, And so if you're a little bit overwhelmed while you're here and you're just thinking, what have I got myself into? This guy, Max, telling me to be, like live radically. He lives in Iraq. Like, am I gonna live in Iraq one day if I'm at this conference? Maybe, but probably not. But I just wanted to encourage you that in 10 years, you're gonna be really glad uh, that you were here. So uh, one of my favorite things about the conference is that it gives you a little bit of a change in perspective about what God's doing specifically on the campus and through the campus. Um, So I'm assuming that on campus, you've probably been to campus meetings, you've probably been to Bible studies, you've probably been to smaller, stuff like that. But when you come to a a conference, you get to see the bigger picture of what God's doing. There's conferences like this one going on all over the country, really all over the world. And there's kind of this unseen movement that God is doing on the college campus um, where College students are growing in their faith all over the world, and, and it kind of goes unnoticed. Um, but it's not until you come to a conference like this that you really see the big picture of what God's doing. And so the title of the seminar is called The Big Picture. And so that, uh, that kind of idea, that change of perspective um, of what I just talked about, when you come to conference and you see a larger uh, scheme of what God is doing, that's what I want to do today or try to do today with the Bible. What happens when you take a step back and you look at the Bible as a whole, instead of just studying individual passages here and there or only studying the New Testament, what happens when you step into the airplane and you fly 30,000 feet over the Bible? What, what happens when you do that? That's what I want to do today. Um, but before we can do that, we need to do a little bit of groundwork. So uh, just to start off, I want to begin the seminar with a really simple question, and I want you... Uh, maybe to write just write your answer down you're not going to have to show this to anybody this is just for your use your own reflection Um, you're not going to have to share it at all and it's okay if the answer is I don't know but just write down your own answer to this question what is the bible what is this book that we carry around that we study that we hear people teach on what is it and it sounds like simple enough of a question it's kind of an odd question to ask at a Christian conference like this, and everyone in the room likely has a decent answer for the question. But here's the thing, if you were to ask that question to the broader culture, you might be surprised at what you hear. On campus, I ask this question a lot, and and I work at a Christian college, Uh, but the spectrum of response that I get when I ask the question, what is the Bible, is really, really wide. And so if I were to go through this room and have each one of you answer that question, I'd probably get 30 or 40 different answers how many people are in here. Um, Some of you would say that the Bible is a divinely inspired collection of writings written by God himself through human prophets, Um, while others would say that man alone is responsible for the Bible. It's just another ancient religious text like the Quran or or something like that, Um, or that it's another ancient literary work like something like Homer's Odyssey or the Iliad or something like that. Some of you would say the Bible is uh, the book of God's wisdom. It's God's rule book. It's meant primarily to guide us in the way that we should live, while others would say that the Bible is antiquated. It's an ancient fairy tale, and it's meant only to equip us with equally outdated morals. Uh, Some would say the Bible is a love letter from God. that is meant primarily to display God's affection for humankind, uh, while others would say The message of the Bible is ugly, it's exclusive, it's contradictory, it's full of violence and therefore God is contradictory. He's full of violence, he is ugly in his character. And then some would say the Bible is the only source of truth in the world, while others would say it's one of many paths to heaven, so to speak. And so maybe you're starting to see why I'm asking the question. Everybody probably has a different answer to what the Bible is, but who's right? What is the Bible? And that's what I want to talk about today. What I want to do is present you with a viewpoint of the Bible that maybe you haven't seen before. Maybe you haven't heard before. And here's what I would submit to you. The Bible is not just another literary work, although it does contain some of the best literature ever written. Even secular professors. I remember my my professor, English professor, taught the book of Job. Dude's not a believer at all, but he loved the book of Job just because literary speaking, literally, I don't even know how you say that. Uh, it was a masterpiece. He was blown away by how it was written. Same thing with the Psalms. They're masterpieces, but at the end of the day, the Bible doesn't exist just for cultural enrichment. It's not only literary at its core. The Bible is also no rule book, although it contains God's law. It's not a magic genie where you go to find uh, God's will for your future necessarily, although it does contain prophecy. It's not a roadmap to your best life now. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme. It's not a collection of fables uh, meant to give us morals to adhere to or examples to follow. It's not a scientific account of the origins of human life. It's none of those things at its core. What the Bible is at its core is it's a story. The Bible is an account of all of human history, past, present, and future, from God's perspective. The story begins in a garden where humanity is with God, like Will said. Man falls away from God, and in the end, we're back with God in a city. So it starts in a garden, it ends in a city, and at the center of the story is a cross. But most of us don't think of the Bible that way. We tend to uh, compartmentalize it. We read Genesis and we ask, all right, what do I learn about God from Genesis? And we write that down in our journal and we take the Instagram picture with our coffee and we put it on our story so everybody knows we're reading our Bible. And then we go to the book of Revelation and we do the same thing. But what I'm saying is that the book of Genesis is telling very much the same story as the book of Revelation, although Moses, who wrote Genesis, and John, who wrote Revelation, lived a millennium and a half apart from each other. And that should blow your mind. Look at it this way. The Bible contains 66 books 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, if I've done my math right. I went to EKU, so maybe not. May have one of these center folks check it. Um, it was written over a span of 1,500 years by over 40 human authors, most of whom never met, let alone live in the same century. It was written in three different al- original languages Hebrew and Aramaic in the Old Testament, and Greek in the New Testament. It was written uh, by those human authors on three different continents. That's Africa, Europe, and Asia. But throughout all of that complexity, all of those authors writing in different cultures, different time periods, different kingdoms, different worldviews, the Bible carries only one theme. That is miraculous that God would weave together such an intricate collection of writings with what some call the red thread of the Bible. There is one theme, one story holding all this stuff together. That's what I'm calling the big picture tonight. And here's what it is. Here's the one theme of the Bible. God is saving the world through his Redeemer, his only son, Jesus Christ, so that man can be with God forever. That's it. Every page is carrying along that one truth, even the Old Testament. The Old Testament proposes the problem and it, and it promises the Redeemer the solution to the problem, and the New Testament presents the solution. It presents the Redeemer. And if we don't approach each biblical text with this greater story in mind, we're doomed to misinterpret the Bible and really miss the entire point. And that's where all the confusion and abuse comes from with the Bible. If you approach it just like a literary work or as a rule book, or as a scientific document, you're going to miss the mark. And tragically, people spent their entire lives studying this book, and they miss it. And so they miss Jesus. And I don't want that for y'all. So what I want to do now is to show you a few examples of how to see the big picture of the Bible while you're reading some of these Old Testament stories. We'll take a look at a few of the major uh, Old Testament stories that probably everybody in this room is at least familiar with, even if you didn't grow up in the church. I didn't grow up in the church, and, and I, I picked three stories that even I had heard about before I was a Christian, because um, I know there's probably folks like that in this room, and I hope that there is. But is. We're going to look at them with what I'll call the classic interpretation, what you probably grew up hearing, and then we're going to look at it again with the big picture lens on. So let me just pray for God's help, and we'll jump in. Father, you have given us an incredibly beautiful and comprehensive account of yourself, an account of us that shows us that we are holy only in Christ. That you created us for intimacy with you, fellowship with you, but we fled from that. God, uh, we we did not we did not love your presence, but we rebelled against you and we fell into sin. And amazingly, you sent a Redeemer for us. That is the one theme of the Bible, and I pray that we would just be able to see that a little bit more clearly uh, because of what we're going to talk about today. So I pray you'd help me to uh, present in a way that is understandable and that students would be able to walk away and do this on their own and be able to read the Old Testament and not get bogged down in the obscurity of it uh, but that they would see Christ even in the Old Testament. Help us, Holy Spirit. Be with us in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so maybe the most clear example of this is the story of David and Goliath. So let's do that one first. You're probably familiar with the story uh, where David, the shepherd boy of Israel, goes toe-to-toe with the warrior giant of the Philistines, Goliath, and he defeats him with nothing more than a sling and a few stones, and he frees the Israelites from impending death. Um it's a great story. It shows, shows what uh, people are capable of when they have faith. That's typically kind of the approach that people give uh, when they teach this story. And this isn't a knock on the artist, but I've got a, a popular Christian radio song up here. That, and this is not a knock, but this is just an example of how uh, this story is normally taught. And just for clarity, my wife and I have had this artist's Christmas CD in our SUV since probably October. So, um, but here's what it says. This is typically how David and Goliath is taught. It says, don't be afraid of the giants in your way. With God, you know that anything's possible. So step into the fight. He's right there by your side. The stones inside your hand might seem small, but watch the giants fall. it sounds beautiful, doesn't it? In this view, your representative in the story is little David and there's some giant coming in your life, it might be sickness, it might be financial trouble, it might be a big biology test on Friday, but if you can just muster up enough faith like David, you know that God will grant you victory over your giants. That's compelling, but it's flawed. Here's the issue with that interpretation. There have been untold millions of Christians over the history of the church who were very much conquered by their giant. Millions persecuted and martyred. Millions imprisoned and oppressed by wicked governments. Millions have died due to illnesses that they begged God to take away. So sooner or later, the person facing a giant in their life who's thinking this way about this story, eventually they're gonna say, either my God-given faith is not strong enough or God is not strong enough to conquer my giant. Or worse, he's able to help, but he doesn't want to. So in the end, that interpretation is destructive. So what happens when we consider that story in light of the big picture of the Bible? What's really going on here? Let's step into the airplane, take a look from 30,000 feet. What do we see when we look at this story through the lens of the big picture? We see that David is an unexpected rescuer, an unlikely savior who single-handedly defeats the deadly enemy of God's people when no one else can and no one else will. And in so doing, he shows himself to be the true king of Israel. That should be ringing a lot of bells. Your representative in this story is not David, but it's actually the cowering Israelites who are unable to conquer the giant on their own. We're the ones who need to be rescued, not the hero. The the point of the story is that God is sending a savior for his people to rescue them from their greatest enemies. So David is not merely an example to follow. You're not meant to look at David and say, I want to be like that. But David is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. And you see the difference in implications. One method of the interpretation makes you the hero which cripples you in the end by putting the burden on your shoulders while the other forces you to call out on the one who is strong enough to save. And it pushes you to Jesus. And there's so much liberty in that because you don't have to be the hero. In fact, you can't be the hero. You cannot conquer your greatest enemies. Your greatest enemies are sin and death. And if you look kind of like Mac was saying this morning, if you stepping into God's throne room at the reckoning of mankind and you're banking on yourself, he's going to say, I never knew you. But if you take this story and you run to Jesus and you let him rescue you from those giants, then you'll be in Christ. And that's liberating, right? That's good news. You don't have to be the hero. That's good. So let's do another one. Uh, the, The next one I thought of was Noah's Ark. So here's the story. The earth has become full of wickedness, full of violence, full of evil, and God decides He's going to send a storm of wrath upon the land to wash away the violence and iniquities of mankind, which will kill them all. But in His mercy, He chooses one man and his family to spare from the flood, and then the rains come, the flood covers the whole land, and for 40 days and 40 nights, Noah's family. And one male and female of all the animals that God sent are spared and preserved to repopulate the land after all life is exterminated in the flood. So what's God doing here? By the way, the, you you might've heard that this is literally in Northern Kentucky. Somebody built, a. they took the replica, they took like the exact measurements of the Genesis and they built it in the middle of nowhere in Kentucky. But you can go and actually go inside. I haven't done it yet. But uh, kind of fascinating, kind of like, okay. Um, But it's huge. You can see it when you drive down the interstate. We saw it on the way up here. Um, Anyway, here's where the 21st century enlightened Western reader takes that. They read this and they say, okay, does Moses really intend to convince me that the entire earth was covered in water? And if so, how could Noah possibly fit every animal on that boat? And was Noah really 600 years old? And Where do dinosaurs fit into this, and what are the evolutionary implications, and does this mean we're all inbreds, blah, blah, blah? It raises a lot of questions, and when I came to Christ, this was the stumbling block for me. The whole Bible, I was like, I I believe Jonah got eaten by a fish, whatever. I believe in the resurrection, but this... And if that's where you're at, please come talk to me after this. I'd love to talk to you about that. But that's not where we're going today. But if this is a barrier in your faith, I'd love to engage over that later. Um, But for time's sake, what's what's the big picture here? Well, here's the classic interpretation. You've likely been taught this story in a way to emphasize Noah's obedience, even in spite of his taunting friends, with applications like we should obey God even when our friends think we're crazy. And I give an amen to that. We must obey God rather than men. That's certainly biblical. That's true. But is that what Noah's Ark is trying to teach us? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say no. And here's why. The biblical account of Noah and the flood in Genesis 6 through 9 never actually even mentions Noah's friends. I guess we get that from Evan Almighty or something. I don't know where we get that idea. Um, but that can't, literally can't be what this story is trying to tell us because it never mentions those people. It literally says God tells him about the flood, he builds a boat, he gets on, and it says God shut the door. That's all it says. Um, now Peter and John do a great job of teaching about obeying God rather than man in the book of Acts, and then Paul touches on that in 1 Thessalonians, but that's not where Noah's getting at. So what are we missing? Well, let's step into the airplane. What's going on from the big picture? viewpoint. Well the human race has become sinful and violent beyond measure so God in his righteousness is going to bring a judgment he's going to give the humans who rebelled against him exactly what they've asked for and he's right and good to do so but here's the thing, God's not only just, he's also merciful so he makes a covenant with the chosen family and provides them with the means of escape from himself so what's going on here? Well, I would argue again, from this perspective, the ark is pointing straight at Jesus. God is going to judge the world because of sin. But because he's merciful, he provides salvation to anyone who would enter into his provided means of escape. For Noah, it's a big old boat. For you and me, it's a crucified Savior and a risen Lord. Jesus is our ark. And if we don't get on board, so to speak, we're going to be swept away by the flood of God's wrath, which came once as a flood, but it's going to come again as a flame. And God saves you from his own wrath by pouring that wrath on Jesus instead of you. And so Jesus is our ark. That's, that's really what the story's getting at. Are we meant to take the story literally? Yes. But there's a lot of wiggle room in there. Even scientifically speaking, don't miss the bigger picture. God is going to judge mankind, and he's made a way of escape from his own wrath. What kind of God does that? Only the God of the Bible. All right, one more, Abraham and Isaac. If you don't know the story, what happens is God made a promise to this guy Abraham that he would become a mighty nation, and his descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky, which sounded really good. But the problem was he was about 100 years old when God told him that, and he had no children. He spent his entire life trying to conceive with his wife, and they were unable to have a child. Struggled with infertility for literally 100 years. So from the start, it's literally going to take a miracle for God to fulfill his promise. And amazingly, God pulls it off 25 years after he makes the promise. So this guy's 125 years old, and he has a baby which is a miracle in itself, but they name the child Isaac and he's going to be the one who will then multiply and lead to descendants outnumbering the stars in the sky. That's kind of the, the brief overview of it. Now imagine this from Abraham's perspective. You spent an entire lifetime with your wife having never been able to conceive a child. You've given up any hope of your family lineage continuing on, which was really the only thing that mattered in ancient life. And then God makes this a, amazing promise to you That one day you'll have a son who will lead to innumerable descendants. And a quarter century later, he fulfills that promise. Now imagine how much you would love that child. You might love that child too much. Idolatrous love for a child always crushes the child. My wife right here, by the way. Smoking hot one right here on the computer. We have to fight this with our own kids. We love our kids, but we got to make sure we're not worshiping them. And that's what God was doing with Abraham here. So God chooses to test Abraham's heart. and Essentially, he says, I want to see where your love ultimately resides. With me, the giver, or with the gift, Isaac? Where's your ultimate love? I want you to offer up your only son, Isaac, as a sacrifice. And of course, Abraham's like, wait a second. You said that Isaac would lead to a mighty nation, innumerable descendants. So either you're actually not gonna let me kill him or you're gonna raise him back to life. But I know that you miraculously gave me this child, so I'm gonna obey you. And in faith, he steps out. He he ties his kid to a bundle of firewood. Imagine the counseling sessions that Isaac had. Um, He lifts up the knife to slay his own son And sure enough, God stops him. And so Abraham passes the test, so to speak. But what's the classic interpretation of that? That we should obey God even when it doesn't make sense, right? Or that even when it hurts or requires sacrifice, we must obey the Lord. That's kind of the typical application here. Another one, uh, that faith without works is dead. Abraham showed his faith by his works. And even Paul argued that later on in the Bible. So it's 100% true. It's certainly biblical. But what else is God doing here? Well, when you look at the big picture lens, you see that the account is less about our sacrifice and more about God's sacrifice. So when God stopped Abraham from slaughtering Isaac, he replaced the sacrifice with a ram. He provided a ram that just happened to be there, and they sacrificed the ram instead. So when God promised Abraham a son, he wasn't directly referring to Isaac, but he was actually referring to Jesus who would lead to the mighty nation. Jesus is the son who God promised to Abraham who would make of him a great nation. And what that means is the promise is fulfilled not in Isaac, but in Jesus, because Jesus led to the mighty nation, which is the church. When God promised Abraham a mighty nation, he was talking about the church. Jesus is the promised son. And this is accomplished not only by Abraham's faith, but ultimately through God's provision of a sacrifice. That's what this story is pointing to. So that's when you see the trite bumper sticker that says John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is not just a cheesy t-shirt. This is... This is the writer of the New Testament connecting Jesus to the story of Isaac. That whoever believes in him, meaning has faith to the point to act on it like Abraham did, will not perish but have eternal life. Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Abraham got to keep his only son because God knew in about a thousand years he would give up his. Likewise, we are able to have eternal life instead of the death we deserve because the author of life suffered and died in our place. He is the sacrifice that God provides so that we can walk away free like Isaac did. So what's the difference in implications? If you don't see Jesus in the story of Abraham and Isaac, you're left feeling like you got to just sacrifice everything, right? You get a paycheck from, you probably work at Chick-fil-A or something, that's where I worked in college. And you give your whole paycheck uh, at church or something like that. But the real meaning of the story is that God's provided a sacrifice for you. Does our faith need action to validate it? Yes. Should we give thanks to God? Yes. Give him your time. Give him your money. Give him your affections. Give him your desires. Give him your love, your life. But don't miss the big picture. That God has provided everything you'll ever need in Christ. And he's the one who made a sacrifice in doing so. All right. So let's land the plane. Let's conclude. Um, when I was first shown this idea of the big picture or we called it the red thread uh, when it was taught to me it really changed everything for me because when I started to see the Bible this way it no longer pointed me to better morals or to good works or to better scripture memory but it pointed me to a person John, uh, Jesus said to himself to the Pharisees in John 5 he said this you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life and it's they that bear witness about me. And he, he, he finishes that thought with, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And like Mac mentioned last night, Luke 24. Take a look at that real quick. It should be on the screen. Uh, verse 13. This is the first thing Jesus did after he rose from the grave. It says that very day, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a mighty prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he, had, he was the one to redeem Israel. So they're looking for this redeemer. And they're right to think it's Jesus. And then they say, yes, and besides all this, it's now been three days since he was killed. Jump down to verse 25. Here's Jesus' response. "O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, meaning Genesis, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus himself viewed the scriptures this way. He saw himself as the ultimate fulfillment of all of scripture. And look at the disciples' response in verse 32. Did not our hearts burn within us when he opened the scriptures to us on the road? Isn't that what we all want when we sit down to read the Bible? That our hearts would burn for Jesus? That we would love Jesus and we would walk in a way that brings him honor? Well, unless we see the big picture... We're going to miss that. So the scriptures are not an end in themselves, but they're a means to the end of you coming to the person of Jesus. And if you read the Bible with any other lens, you're going to miss it. It's not a rule book. It's not a moral compass. It's certainly not a scientific document. It's a testament to the person of Jesus, who is God's fullness in human flesh. He came to save sinners, and there's life only in him. So don't miss Jesus. So let me give you just a couple quick applications on how to take this home with you. One would just be don't be afraid of the Old Testament. Uh, I'm gonna need your help, Eli. I actually made a reading plan for you. These start on uh, January 1st. So if you're not driving, you can start it on the ride home, and they'll take you through the first two weeks of January. Uh, but they've got the theme of what it, what it's saying about Jesus through the Old Testament. Old Testament passage and then a New Testament passage to tie that in. You pass those out. Um, but when I became a Christian, it was 10 years ago, and the Old Testament made zero sense to me. I mean, I thought it was a fable, especially Noah, like I mentioned. But with the big picture lens, it really came to life for me. So read the Old Testament, but do it with the right lens on. And keep your, your eyes open for things that remind you of Jesus. Um, and meditate on those things when you see them. Take it slow. It's, it's meaty. Sometimes it's, it's, it's even awkward to read. Uh, but Jesus is there. Look for him there. The second one, and I'm serious about this, uh, is get a good children's Bible. <laughs> Keyword: a good children's Bible. Alert. I've learned s- since becoming a parent, there's a lot of trash children's Bibles out there. Borderline heresy. But these two are incredible. I mean, I read these when I'm writing talks, when I'm just trying to understand the Old Testament on my own. I mean, we, re- we read this Jesus storybook Bible so much that my, my five year olds is held together with tape. I mean, we read it every day. Um, and it's really helped us to understand. And so I believe this so much, I'm going to give one of these away right now. So, anybody's birthday today? Anybody have a birthday while they're at conference? Boom, here you go. <laughs> Wait, I, I already have You already one have one one. this? Yeah. Wow. I actually want it. Last year. How about you? There you go. All right. I don't know what else to do. January? All right. Here you go. But this one here, uh, the blue one, this was written by the children's pastor, uh, man, Sojourn in Louisville. Um, So he's a Kentucky guy, but these are both really good. So you can find them on uh, thrift books and stuff, dirt cheap. All right, and then if, uh, if you want a little bit more meat, this is a good book. Uh, it's only a couple hundred pages. It's an easy read. Um, tell you what, I'll give this one away too. I wasn't planning on it. This is my copy, but I'm gonna give it away because I know I can get another one pretty quick. Um, so who else has a birthday in January? Nobody, February. Boom, there you go. (laughs) Happy birthday. That book uh, really lit up this whole idea for me, too. And so here's the most important application. I don't know where you're at in your walk, but find a good local church that sees the Bible this way and teaches the Bible this way. Or else you'll be getting applications like have enough faith to conquer your giant. And then you're going to be let down when you don't do that. You're going to feel shame and guilt. Find a, a church that you can attend during your time in college um, that will help you see Christ throughout the entire Bible. We'd be really grateful that you did. So, um, what time is it? Okay, I don't know how much longer we have, but I'd love to take any questions. I don't know if I know the answer. Do you have any questions? Yes. Your response to the um, common or objection that the God of the New Testament isn't the same as the God of the Old? Yeah, yeah. So, um, man, my dad told me that when I was growing up, and uh, I've heard lots of students at Georgetown say that. And I was tempted to believe that at one point in my life, um, but I guess my my objection to that would be that once I saw Jesus, Throughout the Old Testament, looking at it this way, I knew very much it's the same God. I mean, Genesis 3 is the first explicit mentioning of Jesus. And that's thousands of years before he even showed up. Um, But God told Satan that the offspring of the woman will crush your head. And he was referring to the cross. He says that the offspring of the woman, Eve, will crush your head and you'll bruise his heel and so Satan is crushed while the offspring's heel is bruised so it hurts the offspring but he's not crushed he's crucified but then he rises from the grave so Genesis 3 already is mentioning Jesus and I would argue Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 through 3 is talking about Jesus it says that God created the heavens and the earth he did it by speaking and then John 1 calls it calls Jesus the word of God and i mean Genesis 1, first three words, in the beginning. John 1, first three words, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He's tying that back to Genesis 1. That um, just like in salvation, the Father initiates, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies. Uh, So God chooses to save the Son goes and purchases salvation, and then the Spirit applies salvation to you. Um, in creation, it's the same thing. God initiates the creation, but it's the Son who's the creative power. He's the words that are spoken. Let there be light. That creative power is Jesus. Um, and then it's the Spirit hovering over the waters, uh, in verse 3, who's really bringing that about. And so, just the more I read the Old Testament this way, the more I'm sure... That's Jesus. That's the same guy that's in Revelation one. John's in the spirit and he's in some cave or something, and he turns around and there's Jesus, and he falls on the ground. And it's just like when Daniel saw him in Daniel ten. I mean, the more you'll the more you'll look at it, the more I think you'll see that too. But um, but yeah, that, that's a common objection because before the new covenant, it was very much law driven. You know. Um, do this, don't do that. If you don't, you know, like, but the point of the law was to show that we need that Redeemer that God promised Genesis 3. And so, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's why I think it's the same. Any other questions? All right, well, let me pray for you guys, and then uh, I'm here if you want to ask anything else. God, thank you for giving us this incredible testament to the person of your son. I pray that we would search the scriptures, uh, but not to the end of having life in the scriptures like the Pharisees did. I pray that we would search the scriptures that we might know Jesus, that we might come to him, that we may have life. Holy Spirit, help us do that. We cannot do that on our own. We cannot conquer the giants of sin and death. But you have done that for us, and you freely extend your favor to us, completely unmerited. Would we claim that gift now for your glory and for our good? We love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at conycindy.com.